Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. I am thrilled to have Thomas Murray on the podcast. Tom serves as the Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools. Prior to his current role, Tom has been a Director of Technology and Cyber Education and a school principal in Pennsylvania. In addition to his director role, Tom is a blogger, speaker, school district consultant, and author or co-author of 10 Perspectives on Innovation in Education, Learning Transformed, Education Right Now, and Leading Professional Learning, Tools to Connect and Empower Teachers. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. It is awesome to be with you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You know, I, I, one of the recent podcasts you did with one of my best friends, a guy named Joe Sanfilippo, I, I recently listened to. So I got to tell you, after Joe, you can only head up, you know, I'll tell you. No, uh, that was an awesome episode. Joe's one of my great friends, and it's an honor to be with you today. And any, anytime I can give him a, a hard time, I'll certainly do that. But great episode there. Well, thank you. And as you know, the show is centered on leadership development, and I would love to hear your personal leadership journey on how you went from the classroom to a director of innovation. Sure. So, you know, I started out fresh out of college, 21 years old, into the classroom. And I, I can honestly say, I, I don't think I ever looked at myself as a school leader when I was a teacher. And in retrospect, it's one of the mindsets I'm trying to shift now of some of the greatest teachers, some of the greatest uh, support staff members are incredible leaders for kids, but often when they look in the mirror, don't see themselves as that. And that was me as a young teacher. You know, I had a lot to learn. I made so many different mistakes, but I never really recognized being a leader for kids. And so I, I would say my first part of my leadership journey was really learning from incredible men mentors. I had a, a teacher across the hall that was a 26-year veteran. I just remember looking across the hall in awe as kids would run there every day and just how he handled just tough issues and just feeling like I want to be like that someday and just being this rookie teacher with just so much to learn. And, you know, some days I, I'm just trying to get through the day and I'm just trying to make it to the next day and his kids seem to be enjoying it. So when I was a teacher, the leadership piece was watching other teachers that had that veteran experience that I just had to really learn from. I moved then to the middle school. I, I taught then at middle school for a number of years. And part of my middle school journey, I, at that point, I had uh, multiple master's degrees. I wasn't really looking to go into administration. I was not the kind of teacher that set out and said, you know, someday, you know, I've, I've been teaching for 12 days and I want to be a principal. Like that was not me. I was um, seven or eight years in and my principal walked into my room, closed the door one day and said, listen, I know you just finished your, your second master's degree, but I'm only going to be here for three or four more years. And someday I'd love to see you run in this building. And I, I didn't have my principal certification. And I remember thinking like, wow, he, does he really think that? That that was impressive. And I said, you know what? Maybe I will go back. I had a couple of classes to finish up. So I ended up doing that. Of course, the dominoes fall. You know, when my assistant principal in that building um, retires the next February, I become a teacher on special assignment, which was nice because I kind of got the, to test it out. But of course, I get stuck with all the bus, you know, the bus referrals and all the low level discipline and stuff. But I realized, you know, it can be far more than that. And so that, that started to evolve. I had a, a, an opportunity right after that to be an official assistant principal in that building. And I, the, the higher up I went, because I went then to, a, you know, my own pr a principalship and then over to district office and I was part of cabinet. The higher up that I went, the, the, the more removed I, I was from kids, which I will tell you was not something that I was a fan of because kids were why I did what I did. But I'll tell you, I started to realize in my journey, the higher up you go, the more of an obligation it is to serve. Mm 
And so although my circle of influence may have increased uh, in terms of sheer volume of kids and, and other folks, um, I, I become more and more until now working nationally, realizing it's just more and more of an obligation to serve. Um, as a teacher in a classroom, early elementary, you know, with uh, 25 or 26 kids, I loved on those kids every day. I, I cried my eyes out on that last day of school saying goodbye to those kids, you know, and as I continued to move through and uh, through the admin realm, things shifted and things were different over time, but trying to really stay focused on why we do what we do. And so now I have the opportunity to help run something called Future Ready Schools. It is bipartisan. We raise money. There's no sales pitch. We raise money every year to support school and district leaders, uh, whether they're uh, lead teachers or instructional coaches or librarians, district leaders, principals. So I get to work that now. I get to work with um, so many different leaders across the country, whether they're incredible superintendents or incredible teachers like I got to work with today. My journey's been a, a fun road and, and a challenging road, just like every educator that's out there. But what I know is no matter what level I've been, whether it's a teacher in a classroom, a building principal or at the district level, loving and caring about kids is first and foremost on the list of what we all need to do. But the more that we can work together, collaborate together and realize and focus on our why always being kids, the more success we can all have together in that regard. And I want to talk about some of those challenges in your multiple roles. What was one of the most challenging or impactful experiences that created the most growth as a leader? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, I, I look back and, and I'm one that whether I, I speak to a, to a large number of folks or a small group setting, one of the things I really kind of enjoy doing is sharing my own failures. And and part of that is I think when, it, when we talk about leadership for aspiring leaders or leadership uh, leaders in the position, to me, humility is really important. One of my largest turnoffs, and I, I don't care if it was an administrator above me or if I go to a conference and I'm listening to somebody speak, one of the biggest turnoffs for me is the person that seems to pretend that they've got, they, they know it all, they have it all, they were this perfect principle, you know, everything they do in their building is perfect. And look at me, to me, that's one of the largest turnoffs. And to be honest, I see it all over the place. And so for me, I, I really try and share my failures because I think people can learn through that. I think being vulnerable and that transparency shows that you're being real in that regard. It's really easy to tell every great story that you ever did in your educational career and try and make yourself look like this poster child for what a principal should be or you know what that perfect teacher should be. But every person that looks at that, that knows that, that that's fake because we have those realities. So, you know, I think for me, when I think about experiences, I'll often talk about um, my first, my, my, my largest impactful experience was my first year teaching. You know, I was 21 years old. I was fresh out of college. I thought I had a clue is what I was getting myself into. What's amazing for me is I had a mentor across the hall. He was the only other male teacher in our elementary building, 26 year veteran. I often joke he was the exact kind of teacher that every single kid wanted. And when I say I joke that, the, the reason I, I joke about that is because I, true story, when every kid walked into my classroom, they were like, I really wish I had Mr. Weeder this year on that very <laughs> first day of school. And you know, I learned so much from him across the hall. So my, my one really impactful experience that I can remember literally like second by second I can relive. It was about 20 years ago now in that first year. It was October of that my very first year teaching. And I'll, I'll tell you, I had a challenging class of kids. In retrospect, I was also a really, really brand new teacher that had a lot to learn. So I'm sure a lot of my struggles were also, you know, I always thought early on at 21 years old, it was all them. But in retrospect, I don't think I had the best management down or relationships with kids. I had a lot to learn. So it was October of that year. And one of my kids in particular was really, really challenging. 
kind of kid that would never listen, that would kind of bark back the moment that, um, you, had, you know, you called them out on something, would kind of whisper something under their breath, just seemed kind of disrespectful. And it was, it was that October, and I, was, I had lost it that morning, yelled at the kids, went down, and I just – I knew I was in a bad place. I went down to my faculty room. I was huffing and puffing. I hit my hand on the desk, and I remember, like, literally with all my colleagues around, I'm saying, this kid's not getting it. He doesn't understand. I call the parent every day. Mom never calls me back. And I went off for two or three minutes. I hit my hand back on the desk and I was like, I'm just done with this kid. I can't take this kid anymore. And I stood back out and I like flew back out of the room, all fired up, all emotional, taking everything personally. And my mentor from across the hall, name's Mark, he got up and he followed me down the hallway and he closed the door behind me and he looked at me man to man and he got my face in a respectful way and said, Tom, as your mentor, don't you ever ever do that again. He said, you want to get through to this kid? You got to love this kid. You got to care about this kid. You got to wrap your arms around this kid. Like how's the whole like yelling him and holding him in for recess and all that every single day. How's that working out for you? Like you want to get through to this kid. You got to build a relationship with this kid. This kid's got to know you care before they're going to open up. And he went on and on. He said, like, when's the, why do you think mom ever called you back? Like when's the last time you think mom got a positive call? What if you tried that positive call instead? Maybe she'd call you back. What if you tried like having lunch with him instead of just, and, and honestly, he ripped me a new one. But I'll tell you what, I needed it. And I'm very thankful years later that I had a mentor that called me out on it. Because you know what we do a lot in education? We look the other way in that faculty room. And then when that person leaves, we, we talk about them. And we, oh, did you hear? And then we, we go down and we close the door. And one on did you see what happened? Blah, blah, blah. And we gossip about our colleagues sitting down the hallway. I'm so glad I had a mentor that called me out man-to-man, one-to-one, and basically said, knock it off. Mm-hmm. It was the worst abuse case, or I'd say one of the worst abuse cases I would ever see in my career. That's what I didn't know at the time. That was the why. And had that mentor, had my mentor, Mark, not had the the guts and the courage to call me out and basically say, knock it off. You want to get through to this kid? This is how you got to do. look at it. It was at that moment in time. I get chills talking about it. I get emotional talking about it. I really did. I really do. Is that like at that moment in time, I truly started to realize, man, I'm taking everything personal. And this is all about me and my rules and respect for me. And I never had the lens at that point in time, two months into my career, to realize it was about them and not about me. And so when I think about what ultimately really changed the path of my career, it was that. It was a mentor that told me to knock it off. It was a mentor that called me out for being an idiot in in the faculty room and like negatively talking about kids with all my colleagues and bringing my bad day onto them. And look, I get the human side of what we do. I get there's times we've just got to vent to that trusted colleague. You know, I, I get the realities of that. But there I was like talking smack on this kid and just totally taking everything personal, having no idea what that child was going through every night at home and started to understand. And I will tell you, I cried my eyes out the day I realized here's the why this kid's been being abused literally every night. And when he gets to your class in the morning, what he's lived overnight, I remember the horrible feeling of being like and the amount of times I got in his face being like, don't you understand respect and you're not going to respect disrespect me. And just hours before what he had undergone, Mm -hmm. that was life changing for me because I started to realize, man, if I don't know the hidden stories within or if I don't have empathy for the stories that I'll never know, I can't be an effective educator. I can do all the content stuff well. I can share all the content. 
but man, this job is so much more than content. Listen, content's important and what we teach is important, but if we don't know who we teach, we can't really get through to them. And I'll tell you, I'm so glad that that mentor at 21 years old, I started to learn that lesson. I'm not going to say it was perfect every day after that, because that is certainly not the case. I have failed over and over and over again. But I think because of those failures, it's helped me look at things very differently and understand it's all about loving and caring about kids. And I credit with my mentor with that. So obviously your role changed and you became a mentor of teachers as a leader. So which leadership skills were the most difficult to develop? So I'm not somebody that likes conflict. It's just not who I am. I would rather avoid it. And I think one of the things I struggled with early on is being too much of a people pleaser. You know, the times like the a teacher is somebody that wanted to, didn't want to do something and trying to be like, okay, how do I just make this work? I don't want to upset them. There's times we have to have difficult conversations. And early on, I was not good at that. I, I'll say, you know, I, I still don't like conflict. I think anybody that likes conflict, <laughs> I, I'll be careful what I say. That. Um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm still not that person. That, I, I don't see how somebody can truly enjoy that. And I guess, you know, when I watch on Twitter, maybe sometimes people do enjoy conflict maybe. But for me, like there was times I can think about one time, I actually, I did a video on it recently that I'll put out in the next couple of weeks where, um, you know, as an early principal, something had happened in my building. It was somebody that was known to be pretty negative. You ask the average teacher and be like, oh yeah, here, this person goes again. And uh, something happened in my building and I knew about it. And I knew though, that if I called this person in and have the, had the hard conversation that I needed to have, I knew World War III was going to erupt in the faculty room. I knew I'd be called every name in the book. And I, I honestly, I looked the other way, I swept it under the rug, like almost pretended I didn't know. And you know, I, I thought at that point in time, like things calmed down, it was kind of forgotten about a couple weeks later and we were going until it happened again a couple months later. And my teachers knew that I knew. And I started to think about it. You know, my good friend Todd Whitaker talks about how your culture is often set by the worst behavior the principal is willing to tolerate. Yeah. When my, my teachers knew at this point that I knew, and I knew this obligation that I had being like, they know that I know if I don't do anything. So I had the hard conversation and stuff hit the fan in the faculty room. And I was called, I'm sure every name in the book, I was told by other teachers, right? <laughs> but the next day, here's what happened. One of my best people walked in and she looked at me and she said, Tom, I, I, between me and you, I just simply want to say thank you for addressing the situation. We've been wondering for a real long time when, we'd, when a principal would actually stand up and address that situation because it really bothers some of us. Thanks for doing that and walked back out. You know why that hit me at that point? because I realized that my best people were watching. And when I chose to ignore things that I needed to handle as a principal, people noticed that. And I, things that I hope would just kind of get swept under the rugs or really just kind of go the way because I was trying to avoid a conflict because I knew that the bad, you know, tough things would happen from it. People noticed that I avoided it. And so I was modeling and you know, when tough things arise, run the other way. And I'll tell you, you know, I still don't like those difficult conversations, but from a leadership end, you have to have them. And when you don't have them, when you need to have them, people notice that. And that's certainly from a leadership end, a struggle. So as a building principal and then also a person in the district, what do you believe is the largest barrier to the success of other leaders? I would say it's our lens and our mindset. You know, when I think about the people that I really look up to as leaders, folks that when I was a principal, I really looked up to, or as a teacher, I really looked up to. I think the biggest barrier is our own lens that gets in the way or our own mindset. 
I think about how many times when I was a teacher, it was my mindset that thought maybe I was teaching fourth grade. Well, these kids are only nine or 10. They can't do much more than that. And I put a lid on what was possible for my kids because of the lens that I had. And sometimes it's our own mindset that gets in the way. It's our own lens that gets in the way before we can redefine what's possible. And so when we think about it as a principle, sometimes that lens and that mindset, one of the biggest downfalls is ego and pride. It's this notion of I'm in charge and I'm the dictator of the building and you're going to do this or, and it creates such division and hostility in a building and nobody's following. Like they might have the title of a leader, but when they turn around, nobody's following behind them. And so when I think about one of the biggest barriers or biggest issues, I think it's our own mindset. And I think when we have the mindset of humility, the mindset of servant leadership, which is very much evidence-based, honestly, from a leadership end, I think that mindset shifts to where people want to follow, where we're visionary, where we're willing to take those risks, where we value people. Because when we can overcome that lens that often gets shaded, we all have our own way we see the world. But when we can overcome those pieces and overcome our own mindset to realize that this work is not about us. It's all about them. When we can do that, people will follow and are more importantly, our kids will win. So in all your different roles, how did you grow future leaders? When we look at growing future leaders, starting with the definition of, you know, what is leadership and, and who are leaders? One of the, the areas that Eric Scheninger and I wrote about in Learning Transformed was this notion of leaders by title versus leaders by action. You know, I, I get to work with thousands of superintendents in a given year. They have the title. Talk about the top of the food chain in a district, right? Superintendent. I will tell you, I've worked with some of the most amazing, incredible, empathetic, dynamic, authentic leaders that have superintendent on their business card that are far more effective than I think I ever was at the district level. I've also worked with those that I would respectfully say I wouldn't put my own children under their leadership. So it's not the title that makes them effective. Here's the flip side to that. Some of the best school leaders that I've ever worked with are that third year teacher that runs through walls for kids every single day or that support staff member that makes a couple dollars above minimum wage per hour but yet it's a complete backbone to that building. And I'm picturing being a principal and I'm picturing one of my real early teachers or one of my support staff members. It's, it's recognizing the opportunities in others and recognizing where we came from. You know, when I think back, I was sharing earlier about being a 21-year-old teacher, I had I, I had very little ideas to what I was really doing. I, I got the content piece and I, I had done well in my college classes, but the reality is you close that door and it's yourself and 25 kids, you've got a lot to learn early on, right? And so I think growing leaders in that regard is, uh, it, it's an obligation of leaders that are currently there in building capacity in others. One of the things that I think is really interesting is when you look at somebody's legacy, you know, when a superintendent leaves the district, or a principal leaves a building, how much of the things that they initiated continue on after they're gone? The, the things that continue to thrive in their absence. Because if they leave and things become to, come to a screaming halt, to me, that just yells that this was all about that one person or that one person did everything. And ultimately, they didn't build the capacity in others. So as leaders, we have to look for opportunities to build capacity. Some pe people are threatened by that. Some principals are threatened by their assistant principal. Some people, when they, they look at that as a threat, but again, that becomes the conversations. That's about you. That's about me. 
that's not about them. And, and we lose our focus when it becomes the ego and the pride pieces. So I think it's an obligation for leaders to grow other leaders, to build capacity. We've got to remember where we came from and remember, you know, where were we 10 years ago or 20 years ago in that regard? And how do we build capacity and, and helping others in that? Because at the end of the day, that's how our kids win. The better that we can lead from the classroom or from the building level or from the district level, the more opportunities our kids will have. And I'm so glad you brought up Learning Transform because I absolutely love that book and some of the concepts in there. So as districts are kind of turning over to a digital age, how do we increase the effective use of technology instead of just having this very expensive paperweight on a desk? Well, that, that question gets me fired up right there. We are spending billions and billions of dollars in stuff every day on social media. I see things get glorified. You know, I'm 100% digital. Everything I do is in Google Classroom. At the end of the day, as respectfully as I can, so what? You can be amazingly innovative with no technology and amazingly traditional with all the technology in the world. You can be 100% digital, have 100% engagement and do 100% with digital tools and have zero learning. We've got to stop celebrating the wrong stuff. We see it all the time. And even for principals, I challenge principals. I was working with principals today and they all started laughing because they had exactly what they were talking about on their little walkthrough form. We've got our five minute walkthrough form. We walk into the classroom and one of the things on the checklist is kids were using technology. Check. Here's my pushback. So what? So what? Why are we celebrating that? And, and people might start to think like, gee, is Tom anti-technology? I'm not at all. I'm a huge fan of ed tech. Here's the problem. When it's used well, I saw a report just this past week that estimated of the 16 or 17 billion dollars that we spend, uh, there's different numbers that are out there, you know, what do you include? Everything from hardware and routers and computers and software and all that type of stuff. They estimated about, I think it was about six to 6.5 billion dollars is a total waste of money meaning nobody uses it, meaning we spend it, we buy the subscription and 4% of the people actually use it. Let me give you a quick example. When I moved from being a principal to a tech director, it was during uh, 2010, 2011. Remember what was happening in our economy at that time? The sky is falling, the economy's collapsing, districts are really struggling financially, places weren't paying their taxes. So we were at a point in the district that I was in where we were struggling with lots of money, just like other places. We we're letting teachers go. It was just not a good place. And we were telling places, hey, we've got no more money to cut. We can't find anywhere to cut it. And so I was, I also had a lot to learn because I was going from a building budget of maybe a hundred thousand dollars to a district level budget of like 1.8 million somewhere in there. Now it's not Frisco, Texas like yours, but it's a good sized <laughs> district in Pennsylvania. And so I had a lot of questions to ask because I just didn't know. There was a lot of things we were buying that I just had no idea what it was because I didn't have any experience with it. So I was in a cabinet meeting and I started to think through some of the questions and I tried to figure things out. And I said, well, who's buying this? And why does curriculum buy that? And why does technology buy this? And you know, who pays for this? And then I asked the question of like, okay, if I'm buying, you know, 80,000, 50,000, $40,000 for this, this, and this. Okay. So who's actually using it? And the room went completely quiet. And we realized like we were buying all this stuff, but not remotely tracking who was using what. So I went back to my assistant afterwards and I said, Hey, I need your help with something. I need you to contact these companies and I need you to figure out, we've got to run a report like once a month, just on the usage of what we're actually paying for. A couple days later, she walks back in my office and she looks like white and she's holding a manila folder. And she said, so Tom, this piece of software we've purchased, I went back, I could find records for four years. We spend almost $50,000, about $47,500 each of the last five years. And she paused and she said, Tom, last year, four people logged in a couple of times. This was at a time that we had no money that we could spend elsewhere. 
in one phone call saved $47,300. And I bought the four or five teachers, three-year subscriptions and said, we'll reevaluate after three years. One phone call. Another example, another piece of software. Five of my buildings used it every day, used it all the time. Five of my buildings never logged in the entire year. And so when we start to look at these this data, we start to look that it's out there. The other piece at a classroom level, and that's more of a district level, but at a classroom level, you know what we see? We see this glorification that just because something is digital, it makes it good. And that's nonsense. You can be 100% digital, 100% line, and 100% low level. Now, one more story for you related to this, again, about my failures and really how I learned this. I had an incredible principal as an early teacher guy named Bill. Bill created a great culture of innovation. Bill really pushed us to try things. Bill encouraged risk-taking. Bill had our backs, but Bill pushed us instructionally. You see, 18 years ago in my classroom, this is my second year, 18 years ago, I was one-to-one. Palm Pilots. You remember Palm Pilots? You remember those things? So let me just gear this up and I'll tell it very quickly. It was about a 30 minute lesson. He was coming in to do an observation. Don't laugh, but it was a spelling lesson. That's what they wanted to see. That was the block of time that we had for that day. (laughs) So listen, I know, I know he's coming in the next week. So as a teacher, what do I do? I got my dog and pony show observation. I'm going to use technology the whole time because I know he's coming. It'll impress him. So for 30 straight minutes, I had my lesson planned perfect for 30 straight minutes. Every kid was engaged. Basically what they were doing is they were beaming their spelling words. They had individual lists back and forth and checking each other's words and he's watching it. And this whole time I remember thinking like, I am crushing this lesson. I am so excited to hear tomorrow how great he thinks this lesson was, right? And 30 minutes later, I I joked that like I dropped the mic. I looked at Bill about like, yep, that's how you teach a lesson right there. Can't wait to tomorrow's post observation, right? So the next day I go down and I remember thinking to myself, again, taking your teacher being like, oh, I can't wait to hear how awesome he thinks yesterday was, right? It's all fired up. And I go, and so I sit down, he smiles. And again, we had the relationship. I need to make sure that was clear. This was not like the first time we ever talked about anything instructionally. We had the relationship. I knew he had my back, but he also wanted to make me better, right? He wanted to push me. So he smiled and said, so Tom, how do you think the lesson went, right? And if you're a principal listening to this, you're laughing because you've asked that a hundred times in the past two weeks, right? So anyway, so I smiled and I laughed and I said, Bill, like, I think it went great. Like every kid was engaged the whole time. I used technology throughout the entire lesson. Every time I had to ask for, you know, asked a question, every hand went up and he kind of smiled and he said, all right, so Tom, what were your learning objectives? And I said, well, we wanted to use the pump pilots to be able to, and he said, no, no, stop Tom. Like, what were your learning objectives? And I'm like, uh, maybe he didn't hear me. Uh, we wanted to use the pump pilots to be able to, he said, Tom, stop. He goes, I'm going to push you on this. Every time I ask you about learning, you start talking about a technology tool. I've never forgotten that 18 years later. Here's the, he then pushed me on it too. And he said, Tom, like, did you have the engagement? Yes. Did you have the class management stuff down? Absolutely. But I need to push you on it. What did kids learn? He said, let me look at it this way from a technology end. If we removed the technology, could the kids have sat side by side, pencil and paper and done the exact same thing in six or seven minutes that we took 30 minutes to do? Uh, yep. And he was spot on and he pushed me even more. And again, we had the relationship. I didn't walk out there crying. I didn't walk my heart ripped out, never wanting to use it again. That was not the case at all. He said, Tom, I really think you created the lesson because the technology could do something, not because it was the best way to learn something. I am so fortunate to have a principal that pushed me instructionally, not just to celebrate, hey, you use technology, congratulations. Because again, at the end of the day, 
who cares if it's not really helping learning outcomes in that regard? So that framed my reference that second year to really what is it that works? Because I was so enamored by this new shiny object. And let me tell you, when the color Palm Pilots came out, like we were really cool, right? And I joke, and you know, it's funny, it's 18 years ago, I remember being told that there was this belief that these Palm Pilots could actually change education. And how many times do we see on a daily basis things on social media, someone saying that app is a game changer. That website is whatever, fill in the blank. And I shudder, why? Because that's the exact way I felt and talked 18 years ago. And I'm so fortunate to have that principle that pushed me in a loving way to help me see this is all about teaching and learning. Technology is a tool. And what do we know about the research behind it? Because there's research there. What is it that actually works? You see, in my last board meeting when I was a tech director, my um, my my school board president, it was actually the last meeting. I was already going to Washington, D.C. to my current role. And it was my last board meeting. It was also the budget meeting. Now, I, I, if you're if you're somebody that's listening to this that's never been to like a school board vote when they vote on the budget for the next year, I don't know where y'all live, but uh, that's y'all's for you guys in oh, Texas, yeah. right? But I, what I will tell you is where I was from, like that could be, let's just say entertaining would be a good word. So the school board president looked at me and said, so Tom, now we were going one-to-one the following year at our middle schools. So Tom, if we go one-to-one next year and we spend this, it was significant. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars. Will student achievement increase next year? And it's fascinating when you ask a question like that, why it makes us feel uncomfortable. Why is that? So can you imagine, I was thinking myself, like, imagine you asked me that question and I'm like, well, pff, I don't know, yeah, like seriously. maybe, hope yeah. so, fingers crossed, kind of, I hope so. Like what a fool I would have looked like and what business in the world would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in stuff and not be able to answer what it actually is effective. Just because I'm using some tool online does not mean learning is being improved. And that gets glorified on social media all the time. I'm paperless, like with all due respect. So what? That's, that doesn't mean learning. I'm all about saving trees. Like that's not a bad thing, but I'm not going to sacrifice great instructional experiences to, to, to save paper. You understand? And so when we think about these pieces, when I think about the digital, what is it that actually works? From a research end, it's using technology to explore, to design, to create, using technology for active experiences and not the overconsumption or the passive. And passive doesn't mean bad. We're going to use it. We're going to watch a video. We're going to use read a static web page. We're going to consume content. That's not inherently a bad thing. But um, John Spencer wrote a post recently on um, not just being consumers, but being critical consumers, using the, the information critically to make decisions to, to create and to design. It was a brilliant post. It really was. But how do we make sure that it's not just low level passive use? And I don't know this to be a fact, but in my opinion, it's probably one of the most prevalent practices, just that, that lower base consumption of, of of content. And when we think about it, sometimes, and I get this call literally every month, I'll get a, a call or an email um, at least once a month from a superintendent somewhere in the country that will say something along the lines of, Tom, we went one-to-one four years ago. We're up for replacing it all. It's going to cost you know, $1.7 million. And my board is asking, gee, not a whole lot. And test scores has changed. Now I'm not advocating for that, but this is the way it comes through. You know, Testing wise hasn't changed much in the past four years. And the board is saying, well, if nothing changed since we implemented them. Why are we spending another $1.8 million if we're getting the same results? Hmm. 
actually not a bad question, right? Yeah. Now, listen, I'm not saying that the test score things is our verification or that should be that sort of metric. But sometimes we over glorify just because we're digital that we make the assumption that it's good. And I think many times leaders reinforce that. Why? Because they, hey, the board invested this money, so they want to see them being used. So you have to use them in the classroom. Now that you're using it, we're checking it off. Nice job. And if it's totally low level, we're reinforcing low level learning. At the end of the day, we can take incredible devices that have amazing capacities, whether they're you know iPads or PCs or Chromebooks. I don't care what they are. We're giving kids the world's information at their fingertips for learning. And what an incredible opportunity that is. But we have to get out of the mindset of glorifying the digital because we can have the digital to the side and do incredible things without it. There were incredible things happening in classrooms before the very first computer was in it. With all of that said, we have to ensure this return on instruction. And that's the, the term Eric and I were using through Learning Transform to really be sure that the time we're spending, every minute we spend on a device is a minute we're investing in the classroom. The more time we spend on low level stuff, the more time we spend on low level learning, which is gonna yield lower level outcomes. It's why in places like OECD reports, which are these global reports on technology that come out virtually every other year, the headlines read something like this. It'll say something like, the more technology we put in classrooms, the more learning that doesn't necessarily occur. Next time, I, I just I swear I'm going to just write the op-ed that just writes back, thanks, Captain Obvious, and sends it back. Why? Because you can be three to one in your classroom, and if the pedagogy side doesn't shift, don't expect different results. Just digitizing it doesn't make it better. Yep. So what is one initiative you've implemented on your campus or at your district that you are extremely proud of? So for me, a hot topic to, uh, today, as it should be, for a variety of reasons, is around SEL and social-emotional learning. Mm -hmm. One of the things when I was a middle school principal that we did is we really created these advocacy-type periods. They were not perfect. I'm thinking back at this point, at least 10 years ago, where every kid we had um, – at, at our middle school and the other middle school where we would take every adult in the building that had real small groups, the smallest groups we could with kids throughout the year, even over the different grade levels to really work on a lot of the SEL type of things. If we've, if we remain so hyper-focused on test scores and data and we see kids as data points and not children, we have completely lost our way. At the end of the day, if a kid graduates with perfect SAT scores and a 4.0, but they're crumbling inside, that's on like that. I don't want to say that's fully on us because yes, homes and scenarios and all that. But here's what I mean by that is so many times we become so focused on just the academics that we leave out the kid. If we want to change the head, like the brain, we've got to get it through the heart. Because if we don't include the heart pieces at the end of the day, who cares? Like, why are we even doing what we're doing? And so fortunately, we've seen this huge movement nationwide around the whole child and SEL. Um, you know, I think under No Child Left Behind, and I don't mean this from a political end, left to right. I do work in D.C. I do work bipartisan. And so I don't mean this on a left to right end at all. But I think under No Child Left Behind, we put these kids in four-year boxes of like, you've got to go to four-year college. You've got to fit into this box. And, you know, we lost a lot of the... Um, the, the the trades by that where you know kids wanted to go be plumbers or electricians we almost looked down on that in different ways and shame on us for that but we got we became so hyper focused on these four year boxes and test scores and that's what mattered most that we completely lost sight of the heart of the kid and I know I'm really over generalizing when I'm saying that because I know districts and schools and people some places have done that really well since the day they've been in it I get that but without the heart 
the mind we don't we're not gonna we're gonna have to fully reach that mind and so when i think about the work that that we did around that i think it was definitely impactful i can say that we're proud but i certainly can't own that because that was the work of dozens and dozens of people and our school counselors that were incredible around that work and our teachers that did everything they can to be vulnerable and just to love kids and to show them that they are also far more than content delivery and show their heart there as well if we lose sight of, of kids hearts and why we do what we do our work is really pointless at the end of the day if this is just about the memorization of content, honestly, open up YouTube and Netflix. You got all that you constantly could need. So our work has to be far more than that. And that's why the greatest teachers in the world and the greatest leaders in the world see kids as children and the whole child and not just what they got on their SATs. So for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? When I think about leadership journey, and I know we talked about mine a little bit earlier, the advice that I would give is to to first of all, know your why. What's your purpose? If you're taking on a leadership role like a principal, because you think it's just going to be more financially rewarding and that's why you're doing it, I will beg you, do not take that position. Ask any principal if the extra money they might receive for the countless days worked, countless hours worked at night. And yes, I know teachers work at night too. I fully get that. But if you to ask them if that's worth that money, they will, they will just start laughing. That's literally their response. I guarantee hundred percent of the time, because listen, if that's what drives us, if it's the paycheck that drives us every other week, we'll cap our levels of impact very, very quickly. So I would say it's knowing your why, knowing your purpose, understanding why is it that you want to go be an assistant principal or a principal? Why do you want to take that leadership role and making sure you stay true to that why because in the chaos of your world you will go and you will go and you will go and you will go you cannot lose sight of your why second thing that i would say is stay true to your core it's know that what you believe and stay true to what you believe because in leadership roles you will come across incredible animosity you will come across these difficult situations where you'll decide something and you'll get half the building that's mad at you if you don't know your core, you will waver in the wind back and forth in politics. You hear every election. Well, they're just flip flopping on what they did. Right. And if people don't know your core, they will constantly ask you for per per permission. And if people are constantly asking for permission, asking for permission, asking for permission, you will not build the culture that people need where you can empower them to run and go do what they can. Some of the best leaders give teachers what they need and get the heck out of their way when they've got the tools to do what they need to do. So it's, it's certainly understanding your why it's knowing your core. I would also say it's being vulnerable and transparent. You know, as we work our way higher up, whether it becomes principals or district leaders, it, it almost gets this pressure. And I remember feeling it myself, like, you know, people are looking to me for the answers as that principal. I've got to know all the answers. My pushback on that for leaders, especially new leaders, is no, you don't. Your teachers will actually respect when you say, you know what, I don't know. Let's look into that. I need to ask why, because it shows you're being thoughtful as opposed to I'm going to make decisions on a whim and I'm going to make the wrong decision. You know, when I started as an assistant principal, I had many teachers in my building that had more years teaching experience than I had been alive. And so when I looked at that and I had to understand and recognize the value in that, but I also had to have the humility there to realize, man, they've been at this a long time. I am not faking out that 30 year veteran because they've seen a lot of principals come through this office. And so understanding those pieces. But I would also say related to that, the humility side is vital. If people look at you as you're coming across as this perfect person that's that was this perfect teacher right before they took this position, you know that sits in an office, uh, you know on their throne down there and the, the the white office that are, that's down there and they they've got it all. If people think that you come across as this perfect person that's never made mistakes, 
they can't relate to you because they don't understand. They know that they're constantly failing on a daily basis. And I mean that lovingly, of course, you know, making those mistakes constantly. That if you come across like that, people won't approach you. The other piece that I would say is, is that leadership and culture, and this is going, going back to Learning Transformed, when Eric and I were studying like really successful schools that were transforming, what is it that it takes? Our first key is that leadership and school culture lay the foundation. And when we take a look at that, it's understanding that as a principal or as a leader, you set that tone for culture. Now, every just every person in that building responsible for that. It is culture is not the responsibility of just one person, but as that leader in that position, you absolutely set that tone. How do you model that work? And so my last plea related to that, um, my good friend, Jimmy Casas often talks about how what you model is what you get. And so when you take a look in that modeling, if you're gonna ask teachers to build relationships with kids, it is your moral imperative to build relationships with your teachers. If you're gonna ask your teachers to be in the hallways during passing, it is your moral imperative for you to be in the hallways during passing. If you're gonna ask your teachers to get back to parents in 24 hours, you need to get back to parents in 24 hours because we can't ask teachers to do one thing and then we go do the other. It's kind of like being a parent. I've got two kiddos here. And if my wife and I just tell our kids to do something over and over and over again, but we continue to act in a very different way, they're not going to care what we say. They're going to follow and see what we do. Right. And so that's that leadership is all about action, but model what you expect. For instance, if you're going to run a faculty meeting and you're just going to lecture for 60 straight minutes every single time, how in the world can you say to a teacher, you can't just lecture every single time when that's what you do? And by the way, that's my example of when that hit me when I did that. So I share that through a failure. But what you model is what you get. So you better model as a leader what you expect. Because the flip side related to culture, every time we bring people together, it's an opportunity to model what we're looking for. Every time we have an in-service day, it's an opportunity to model what we expect for teachers. Every time we have a faculty meeting, it's an opportunity to model the instructional practice we're expecting from teachers as well. And I would say the last piece is going back to that why. Our job is love and caring about kids. And your job as a leader is to do everything you can to take things like equity, to take things like making sure that every opportunity for every single kid exists. Because at the end of the day as a leader, that's really why you're there. So in addition to your admin position, you speak at conferences, you've written multiple books, and you're very active on social media. How did you find your voice beyond your district? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. You know, when I think about it, I, I originally signed up for things like Twitter because I had friends that had been on it and they saw value in it. When I originally signed up on Twitter, I, I kind of I started tweeting a couple things out. I saw a little value. And like many people, after the first couple of weeks, I didn't use it for like six months. <laughs> and then I had another colleague that said, man, why aren't you on Twitter? Why aren't you using this kind of thing? Here's, here's for me is, is people won't invest the time if they don't see the value. If they see something like Twitter as people just like posting when they brush their teeth, you can't question why they don't see the value in that. And so it's number one, it's if you, there's, we all have a finite amount of time. So invest the time where you have the, uh, the value and where you'll get the value. I say all the time that I use Twitter very selfishly. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of people out there that are a heck of a lot smarter than I am that know a lot about a lot of things that I don't know. So I use it to learn. So I use it to take, I use it to get resources. I use to hear voices of other people that are not in my district. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in a pretty suburban district. Well, let me tell you, I can learn a lot from people that weren't in urban districts every day or in real rural districts every day. Why? Because their experience is different. And 
so for me, it was helping to understand that although we were doing really good things in the district that I was in, the moment we put up walls around the one district that we're in, we become really limited from outside influences. And when you start to see, like when we started going one-to-one, being able to leverage social media to connect with other tech directors that had already gone one-to-one and things like acceptable use policies, or maybe it's a responsible use policy, or, well, are we gonna give them access at home? And do we have to charge a usage fee? Or what if a kid's on free? Like all those questions are things that I was able to reach out to people that had gone before me. So I started to see the inherent value of, wow, I can learn a lot. And so when we think about social media, we think about conferences, just like I was saying before, every one of those is an opportunity. So I try and get go at those as a learner. I try and go at those by also not just taking, I don't want to just be a leech there in that regard, but by contributing. So on a weekly basis, I try and share out content. I've been doing a lot with video and on a weekly basis, I'll share out some sort of vlog or like video one minute kind of content. Why? Because video is king or podcast like this, you know, people can do it in a passive way. And so when we think about those pieces, that's trying to give back but it's also trying to amplify the voices of amazing other people. And so at least every other week, I try and amplify the voices of great people that have different experiences than me that are um, not male or not white or just have differences than than I do in that regard to amplify great voices. Why? Because if I've got any sort of platform to be able to to do that, or just like you, you have a podcast with other people, being able to amplify the voices of others, I think is an obligation of those that have certain platforms. And so for me, being able to go when I was a teacher or as a principal, past my district and grow and learn from others, but now in the work that I do to still grow and learn from others, but also help give others the spotlight to tell their story, I think is a great opportunity. Why? Because at the end of the day, our kids win when we all do that well. Well, and I know you have an announcement coming up soon on a new book, and I just want to give you the platform to talk about that new literature. All right. Well, just coming out and literally just announced by the time that this will come out. I am um, partnering with George Kuros, one of my good friends, author of The Innovator's Mindset. I'm sure uh, many, if not most of your listeners have heard that and will be publishing with IM um, Press, mm-hmm. so Innovator's Mindset Press there in the fall. And so looking forward to that coming out. The book will be called uh, Personal and Authentic. Um, that is something I always talk about from a learning end, from a relationship end, from a leadership end, from a culture end, interacting with parents. Um, the work that we do needs to be and is most effective when things are personal and authentic. So I'm fired up and excited to share. It's my first solo book, um, Learning Transform. I got to write with one of my best friends, Eric Scheninger, an incredible, well-established author. Um, so this one is is just my voice in that mix, but I'm super excited to say um, I've got dozens and dozens of voices throughout the books, uh, throughout the book, um, literally about 50 teachers and admin have contributed through tips and other ideas. The Learning Transformed was very much written really for admin um, and aspiring leaders on shifting the system where the voice of this one is really for teachers and principals. Um, taking a look there, a lot of, it's really through narrative, through story. Some of the things that I alluded to here in this conversation, uh, they're really going to depth in some of those stories and also through some reflection, but also linking some evidence to practice, but wanting to be very practical in nature. And so excited, expecting that to come out about mid-November. We shall see. It's always the the editing process and whatnot takes some time. But anytime I can um, get my voice out there, it's truly an honor and it's it's very humbling to be able to do that. So excited and thanks uh, thanks for willing to share that. Oh, I can't wait to read it. In closing, what is the most enjoyable aspect of leadership? So I'd say the most enjoyable aspect of leadership is overcoming the difficult situations to be able to look back quickly in that rearview mirror 
and see the impact that you had. One of the things that I talk about in my new book is how as educators, whether you're a teacher in the classroom or you're a principal running a building, your thumbprint is on the lives of others for generations to come. And I don't say that lightly. The impact you have as a teacher. Um, one of the things my wife would always say um, when our kids, you know, our kids are still young going through, but she would often say a saying that's out there she had heard too is like the, how the, the, the days are long, but the years are short. And I think that's very relevant for leadership in the sense of you spend countless hours round the clock. You spend more time at work than you spend with your own family and you give up so much to be a principal or you give up so many facets of life that are not easy and they, they can impact your family. And they're, they're really a struggle in that regard. But when you look back and the time that you invested or the time that you're sitting across from the kid in your office for the 42nd time that year, and you look back at the end of the year and you see the growth and you see the impact that's the reward because at the end of the day, we do this to serve others, not to serve ourselves. And so those times are really long. Those hours are really long. But looking back on 20 years in my career now, the years are pretty short. Mm -hmm. And so the for leaders, the the really that reward is far greater than any paycheck that you can receive. It's knowing that you've touched the lives of others and positively impact them and their families for generations to come. So, Tom, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Sure. So on Twitter, I'm Thomas C. Murray. And uh, Instagram and Facebook, it's Thomas C. Murray EDU, simply because I didn't sign up for Thomas C. Murray early enough. So if it doesn't look like me, it's not me. So yeah, Thomas C. Murray or Thomas C. Murray EDU on those platforms, or check out the website at thomascmurray.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts um, on the show. Any pushback, constructive criticism or affirmations, I'm always all for it there too. And I will simply say on my end, for those listeners, thanks for serving kids. Thanks for the the late nights. Thank you for the early mornings and thanks for what you do every day to change the lives of others. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast and if you've gotten any value from the show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire Lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on social media. Tom, thank you so much for being on the program. Honor to be here. Thanks for having me, my friend.